When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. Hello. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Welcome to Audio Judo, like you just said. Yeah, I did. Proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, We've been part of this network for about seven months now, and it has been a fantastic relationship for us thus far. Yes, it has. Opened up more markets to us, getting some exposure in over 50 countries and almost every state. Come on, Vermont. You're the only holdout. (sighs) Just Vermont. You're killing me, Vermont. The whole state. Jeez. If you haven't listened yet, uh, we encourage you to go over to Pantheon Podcasts and find something. They have tons of options. Check it out. There's literally something for every type of music listener. Oh, yeah. And then come back and listen to us again. We have something new every two weeks. Indeed, we do. Uh, today, Kyle continues his assault on me by picking another album that has had volumes written about it. Uh, yeah, I've apparently gotten really good at this. Complicating. My research for this episode, chewing up valuable time, hours of valuable time that I don't have at all to comb through all of this research. Chew- valuable time. Sorry, I have nothing but time currently. I couldn't I gotta... watch six movies today. I can only watch four because I was researching. No, I'm just kidding. You ruined uh, my day. Ruined. Uh, but Simply you chose ruined. another doozy. I did. Today, we are talking about uh, Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Oh, boy. Giant double LP. You, you could choose. You picked them. I did, and I picked this one specifically because I I, I have a good history with this album. Oh well, that's good to know. It's and a, I don't know that history at all. Yeah, so I know. This be I, educational for me as well. We'll roll back around to this. So, how much do you know about Elton John? Me? Yeah. Uh, I know quite a bit, Sir Elton Hercules John. Hercules John, Order of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Was born Reginald Kenneth Dwight. Good name change. In 1947, in Middlesex, 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 England, raised mostly by his maternal grandparents. Mm-hmm. In our ongoing theme of high school dropouts, he left secondary school at the age of 17, right before taking his A-level exams, to pursue a career in music. And he actually started playing piano at age seven, won a scholarship at age 11 to the Royal Academy of Music, which we talked about before as well, very prestigious. Apparently, he was a great sight reader. One of his teachers had him uh, look at a four-page piece of music one time, and he played it almost all from memory, which is pretty impressive at that age. Wow. Pretty impressive 
at any age. Uh, his father was kind of absent, and his parents eventually divorced, but his mother remarried, and his stepfather was really supportive and nurturing of young Reg, uh, so much so that uh, Elton John would continue to live in their house until he had four albums simultaneously in the top 40. <laughs> he would actually write a lot of his hits in that house, which is kind of crazy. In 1967, he answered an ad for a new label in a British music magazine. Uh, when he met with the higher-ups, he was handed an envelope of lyrics from a gent named Bernie Taupin, who had answered the same ad. Uh, John wrote music to the lyrics, sent them to Taupin, thus beginning the most successful songwriter-lyricist combination in music history. Oh, easily. The first song they collaborated on was called Scarecrow from 1967, and it would be about this time that John would start going by his stage name, Elton John, an homage to two members of a band called Bluesology that he had been in, namely Elton Dean and Long John Baldry. They joined DGM Records in 1968 as staff songwriters and for the next two years wrote songs for various artists. The method in which they worked was fascinating and I'm sure is part of the outlier system that we've talked about oh, yeah. several episodes ago. Toppin would write lyrics for an hour, send them to John, who would spend a half hour writing music to the lyrics, throwing out any lyrics that didn't work, and they did this for two years. <laughs> Think of that output for a second, Kyle. Right. The amount of material being produced is so significant the work on the craft so substantial that it's no wonder they would eventually hit it big with the gorgeous melodies and lyrics that we know them for. Right. Because eventually, if you edit, you weed out the garbage and you end up with the great stuff. Yeah. Uh, they struck out on their own in 1969 and released John's first solo record, Empty Sky. Uh, it wouldn't be released in the U.S. until 1975, well after he'd hit it big. So yeah. it sold good retroactively. Surprise. But it's the stepping stone, stone to his second record, simply called Elton John. Released in 1970, this album all but cemented his career with your song. Yes. One of the finest piano ballads of all time. Easily, yes. That record would be number 468 on the top 500 list for many years. But it's been left off the most recent version of that list. And that kind of swings me back around to something I had at the beginning. Goodbye, mm. Yellow Brick Road. Currently, number 112 on the Rolling Stone list of best 500 albums of mm -hmm. all time. That, to me, is a bit ridiculous when you look through the list and realize how many crap records are actually ahead of it. <laughs> uh, it used to be number 91. Yes. And they'd done some shifting uh, recently. And I'm sorry to all the Swifties out there. I think her music is pretty good. But to have four albums on that list is a little over the top. Mm. Uh, she writes fine songs, but none of that stuff is groundbreaking or interesting or fantastic. It's fine. But there are thousands, thousands of fine records out there, so I don't get it. Unless, unless you were trying to boost sales of your magazine by appealing to a younger audience. Just saying. Huh, what a surprise. And that is always the trick with lists like that is they are either a product of the time they were made or they modernize and they become controversial because everybody that knows the old list is like, no, these people shouldn't be on there. And everybody who only knows the new list is like, absolutely, they should be on there. I've only listened to them my whole life. Right. So, yeah. I'd like to be in the room just to discuss the merits of, you know, I just find I find nothing yeah. uh, challenging about it. Uh, or yes. even that that great to listen to. It kind of passes by like, like white and like wallpaper. It's like, okay, that's a song. But so what? Yeah. It's my two cents. So uh, you you sort of uh, did a nice job outlining the beginning of the career of Elton sure. John. Why he's important, uh, obviously, as a musician. He has sold over 300 million records. Making, that's some. That is just a few. Uh, that's like if every person in the United States bought one Elton John record, basically. 
<laughs> Does every person in the United States have one Elton John record? Legally, we are required to own one. I think Elton you have. To, I think if you buy a house or something, you yes, have to. Yes, you have to own an Elton John record. It's, it's a, in the papers. It's a structural thing. Yeah, it has to be built into part of the wall to support. Ooh, the, like the a I cornerstone. Beam. Yeah, you know, one <laughs> corner tells you what year the building was built, and the other corner is like a, a copy uh, of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. A, a copy of Goodbye <laughs> Yellow Brick Road, or a single of the bitches back. Oh or, yeah, you know something like that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he has. Over 50 top 40 hits in the UK singles chart and US Billboard Hot 100 chart, including seven number ones uh-huh. in, the, in the UK and nine in the US. His tribute song, Candle in the Wind 1997, is the number two highest selling physical album of all time. Oh, we're going to talk about that one. We're going to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, 33 million copies worldwide. Physical copies. Yes. That is not digital copies. No. There are songs that have beat these digitally. Obviously, a lot easier to distribute, a lot cheaper to purchase. This is 33 million physical copies, CD, cassette. Uh, I don't know whether that was actually released on vinyl or not, but you know, whatever format physically sold, that is insane. It is insane. Let's see what else. Uh, his most commercially successful period, which you were about to get to, mm-hmm. uh, 1970 to 1976, included the albums Honky Chateau from 1972. I love that name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, 1973. I love that name. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, also 1973, uh, and his first greatest hits compilation. Both of which, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and his, greatest, his first greatest hits compilation, top 100 selling albums of all time. Correct. And uh, 1970 to 1976, that's the period you referenced. Mm-hmm. He released... 10 studio albums in that <laughs> amount of time. 10 studio albums in six years, 16 top 40 singles, and six of those number one. Yeah. It is insane. So as far as my personal familiarity is concerned, it's very similar to my experience with Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. Uh, my older brother was my primary influence uh, in music, and the only John records he had were Blue Moves from 1976, of which I remember nothing except Sorry Seems to be the hardest word, mm-hmm. and the greatest hits record from 1974. Uh, I listened to that one quite a bit when I was younger, but that was it. You know, as I got into adolescence, I never sought it out. Uh, my brother was never really into the singer slash songwriters, so there was a vacuum in my musical education. But I've always liked it. You know, if it was on the radio, I listened. Someone was singing it at karaoke. I didn't make an ex- make up an excuse to leave the bar. I just <laughs> I just didn't seek it out. But there's no denying from me that he is one of the greatest songwriters in pop music history. And it would be this record, Goodbye Elbrick Road, that we're going to talk about today that is one of the most remembered, most sung, and most cherished of all of his catalog. Yeah. So, Goodbye Yellowbrick Road, go ahead. Goodbye Yellowbrick Road is probably the first, I'm going to call it an adult song, that I knew how to sing and that I knew all the lyrics to. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean it's not like the ABCs are like baby shark or some crap like that that you teach the kids it was a song clearly not geared necessarily towards children that i knew all the lyrics to probably by the time i was four or five and the reason why is because it is my dad's forever earworm oh growing up when i was a kid my dad would be doing stuff he'd be doing the dishes and he would start when are you gonna come down when are you going to learn? And he would sing goodbye yellow brick road and he would not even realize he was doing it he would be loading groceries in from the car when I get, he'd be out working in the garden when I get, he'd be putting up a fence when i gonna come down he just sings it all the time he has been doing this my whole life 
and presumably much longer because I think that he bought this album probably when it came out. Yep. Because of that, I knew all the words to this song and I sort of knew that it was a real song, but I had no association with where it came from until I inherited his record player when I was uh, six or seven years old. And I, I think I've told this story before where I had to use my own money to buy a new needle for it or yep. a new cartridge for it. And it was really expensive, but I wanted it and he ended up paying for part of it. And then we got it installed, blah, 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 blah. Um, this was one of the albums that they had, my parents had in their collection of records. And the uh, let's skip right ahead and talk about the album cover. Oh, sure. Because the front cover is this picture of Elton John uh, wearing a jacket that says Elton John and like rhinestones on the back of it. These big red platform platform boots that are, look shiny. And he's stepping off of a dirty sidewalk into what looks like a poster on the wall of a yellow brick road leading off into a green pasture. Yeah. Even as a kid. Fascinating. You're like, wow, this is really an interesting, like, it's not particularly detailed, but it has enough detail to it that you're like, all right, this is, uh, it, it drew me in. Well, it's I guess. six panels too. That's what's even cooler. Yeah. You pop this open um, and I, it's got on the inside of it, uh, it, it at the, even at the time, this was a unique design to have it fold open this way. It's a very generous palette to work with. Dude. Yes. You have six panels. Uh, the first inside flap. Uh, has this picture of all the main artists, uh, Elton John, Davey Johnson, Bernie Taupin, Dee Murray, and Nigel Olson, taken by um, uh, three different photographers, uh, Brian Forbes, who was a very famous British director, Mike Putland, who is a very famous music photographer, and Ed, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his last name, Karaif is how I would do it. It's uh, C-A-R-A-E-F-F. Sure, that sounds right. So I apologize right. if that's pronounced wrong. Crave, uh, who is another famous music photographer. And they're just kind of lounging around with their instruments. Mm -hmm. And then you get to open that. And on the inside is this giant spread of every single song, set of song lyrics. And every single one has an illustration to go with it. Yeah. And as a kid, it was just this fascinating, like I was just getting to that point where I could read. So I could open it up and read the lyrics. It's all and there's, laid there's bare these for pictures you. pictures that draw you in. And I remember the first time picking it up and kind of looking at it. I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to this record. I had no idea what it was. And it did not even associate in my brain that it was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road on the front. And that was the song my dad always sang. And I remember putting it on to listen to. And I started listening to it, and I'm reading through the lyrics for the first song, you know, as it's playing, and then the second song, and the third song, and then Goodbye Yellow Brick Road comes on. And I was like, in my head, I was just like, oh my God, this is a real song. Yeah. This is a real, he's just not, not making just up weird mumbling shit. all the time. This is a real song. And I probably listened to it 10 times in a row. Probably scratched the crap out of that record, probably. too. <laughs> uh, but- I remember suddenly being like, oh my God, this is, this is real. This is something that somebody else made that he knows. And it was this weird, that weird realization when you're like, music exists. Like, <laughs> I don't know how else to put that into words. That's a good way to put it. It is a weird realization that you're like, oh my God, there's so much music and it all exists and other people listen to it like my parents. And it was, it was a weird realization to have, especially at a younger age like that mm -hmm. and be like, wow, that's cool. It was really cool to me. So I, I have listened to this record a lot, especially as, like I said, as a younger kid. Um, it then passed on to my sister for a while. Uh, and now I believe it is that copy of it anyways, is somewhere at my parents' house. So you're saying it has absolutely no significance to you whatsoever? No, none whatsoever. Okay. It is a completely, uh, in fact, I hate this. Just double checking. Yes. I guess we probably should mention the inside illustration was by uh, David Larkham uh, and Michael Ross. 
except for Harmony and Saturday Night, which were illustrated by David Scott. Mm-hmm. There's a Ian Beck did a lot of the uh, illustrations as well. Yes, who's a now a super accomplished children's author and illustrator. Yes. He did the front and the back. Yes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I didn't mention that when we were talking about it, did I? No, that's okay. I have it in my notes. That's all right. Anyways, um, there's a really good, um, David Larkin did an interview with the uh, Album Cover Hall of Fame, which is a really cool website. I believe it's just albumcoverhalloffame.com. It's very extensive, that that website. Yes. Uh, Mike Goldstein is one of the uh, curators of that site. David Larkin did a, an interview with him from April 18th, 2014. If you go on there, you can look it up. It's very detailed about what influenced the cover design and what didn't. He goes into great detail about when they took the pictures and what everybody was doing and how everybody felt. And it's it's really probably one of the most in-depth. Like usually when we're looking at covers, it's like you're lucky if you can find out like who took all the pictures. And, exactly. And, you know, why did they do this in blue instead of green? It's like, oh, fascinating. And then suddenly there's this just dropped in my lap. And I was like, oh, my God, this is every detail I could ever yeah. want. It's a trove. You it can, is. You can dig pretty deep. Yes, it is. Uh, loop it back around a little bit, though. So about this this album. Yeah. Obviously, like we've said, Elton John's seventh studio album. Mm-hmm. Very long. It's a double LP. It's uh, 76 minutes and 20 seconds long. Yes. Uh, sold more than 30 million copies worldwide. Which uh, is actually 15 million copies because it's a double LP. Th- there you go. So you count it, count it as two. <laughs> oh, I wish it worked that way. It, that is how it that works. That is really how it works? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, That's... so it's a, if it's a double LP and it sells 15 million copies, then it's actually attributed to sell 30 million copies. Oh my God, that's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. So then why wouldn't everybody just release a triple LP or like a quadruple LP? With just a bunch of like, fluff in it? Yeah. Just a bunch of nothing? No, because- uh, This uh, is called the uh, silence and it's 30 minutes of just- <laughs> Same thing happened with Billy Joel's greatest hits. It's like oh. sold 22 million copies, but well, really technically it's only 11. Now I feel stupid. No, don't feel stupid. Uh, I always feel stupid. No. Well, how do, I wonder how they count that with this conversion to digital though. I don't know. Because yeah. if it was like a double LP when it was a, an album and that counts as two and then a digital, does that only count as one or does it still count as two? Or I don't know how the downloading stuff works. Huh, I might have all, to see All that. I know is people, uh, musicians aren't getting paid right, but whatever. Yeah. More research warranted. Yes. Um. It was uh, originally supposed to be recorded in Jamaica. Oh, yes, I uh, have that. Yes. Uh, uh, one of your uh, favorite vacation places. Yeah. It was recorded at Chateau de Horville yes. in France, where he recorded his last two records, uh, but was really intended to be recorded in Kingston. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make it down there because of uh, the Rolling Stones' success of Goat's Head Soup uh, that was recorded there the year before. He and Toppin stayed at the Pink Flamingo in Kingston, wrote almost all of the record in two weeks. The bulk of that being Toppin's time with lyrics. Apparently, John only took three days to write the music. That's just disgusting. That's amazing. I think that falls back into our thing that we've talked about before about the, you know, it's all in their heads. They just have to get it out. And if you find the right circumstances, there's a song. He must have had a lot of stuff in there. So those sessions would uh, also produce a song, unfortunately, called Jamaica Jerk Off, which we will talk (laughs) about in a little bit. But when they entered the studio in Kingston to record the album, they had setback after setback, including the political strife going on in Jamaica at the time, as well as a boxing match that was consuming the country. Yeah, Joe Frazier, George Foreman. Yes. Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. Before production even started, they moved to France and completed the album in two weeks. So they had 22 songs for the record, of which they were to record 18. 22, Kyle. Yeah. 22 songs 22 in songs. less than two weeks. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Did you watch... Uh, uh, oh, crap. I think it's later in my notes. I'm not going to search for it right now. There's a, a documentary about the making of this album. 
I did that watch came it. with uh, the the fortieth fortieth anniversary, I believe. Fortieth, yes, yes. Did you watch the part about when they were they were making this in France? And yeah. it was literally like what would happen is Bernie would wake up in the morning early and write and then give lyrics to Elton at breakfast. And Elton would eat a little bit of breakfast and then go over and start playing the piano and coming up with melodies. And all the other musicians, because it was like a communal dining room, yeah, they would all start kind of chiming in like, hey, try that. Hey, do this. And then by the time lunch was or by the time breakfast was over, they'd have a song. So then walk to the studio on the other side of the building and record it. And then they'd come back for lunch and then Bernie would come in with lyrics and then do it all over again. It's like a machine. It's like a machine. That's great. It's amazing. That's the same recording studio where he did uh, Honky Chateau. And uh, the and they they lovingly referred to it as the Honky Chateau. But uh, what was interesting to me, I I found like four different names for this studio. Studio Enregistrement Michael Monnier. Really? But uh, that just literally means uh, Recording Studio Michael Monnier. <laughs> so uh, it's also called sometimes Strawberry Studio. It's also called uh, Honky Chateau, obviously, and uh, Chateau de Horaville. Chateau de Horaville. Oh, and uh, Don't Shoot the Piano Player was also recorded here. Correct. Uh, yeah. That's all I got for setup. Certified 8X Platinum in the, by the RIA. However, I wonder if that's only 4X Platinum. Yeah. Ah, there you go. That's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the only other piece of uh, info that I had about it. Should we do this? Should we do the track by track? I think so. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back. Kyle. Yes. Have you ever uh, felt like you wanted to try something new? Like, oh boy. like cooking or basket weaving. Yes. But you didn't know where to start. Mm, that's, like I a, do usually have trouble starting. Like you needed a roadmap or a guide. Yeah. A lot of people feel like that about jazz music. Ah. So, you know, they don't know where to start. It seems too complex. Do I start with a fusion or big band or the legends? I, I know I feel like that personally. It is a very deep and, and rich subject with a, a lot of places you could start. All right. So, well... We here at Audio Judo have something mm -hmm. to fix all that. And with the help of our guest host and jazz spirit guide, Chris, we're going to help uh, try and help you navigate the treacherous waters of listening to jazz. Uh, we will be premiering a new spinoff podcast series called Audio Judo Does Jazz in late April. It's, mm -hmm. it's going to be fun, interesting. I'm looking forward to it. We're also recording that bad boy exclusively with the new podcaster kit from AKG. Yes. Chris doesn't have any experience in podcasting, so we wanted to make it as easy as possible for the person who doesn't have studio equipment or editing headphones or anything like that. So this podcaster's kit is perfect. He gets a cool mic, set of headphones, software, bingo, blango, he's podcast. Yeah. All that means is more competition for us, so we have to bring our A-game because everyone is going to be podcasting soon. The only thing I didn't like about it is uh, since Chris is using it, I can't steal it. No, you can't steal That's it. That's unfortunate. So, uh... Well, it's a shame we had to send it to Chris. Yeah. He's, he's going to make the most of it. Yeah. Like I said, look for that series in late April. Yes. Because we are super jazzed about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Dad wordplay. Welcome back, everybody. Funeral for a friend slash... Love Lies Bleeding. What a way to open an album uh, with a funeral. <laughs> Leave it to Elton John to begin his grandest album with his bombastic 11-minute opener. Right. That works as more or less an overture for the album. Uh, the first part, Funeral for a Friend, was composed by John when someone asked him what kind of music he would want to hear <laughs> at his own funeral. Uh, that opening synthesizer part was written and played on the ARP synthesizer by the engineer of the record, David Henschel, 
he would end up producing a number of Genesis records oh. further on in the 70s. Anyway, he layered track after track until he got something he liked. Uh, and it then leads into Love Lies Bleeding, which is a very angry breakup song, courtesy of lyricist Bernie Taupin. It's very interesting to me. This was originally two songs. And uh, Gus Dungeon, a uh, Dudgeon. I always the producer Dudgeon, yeah. yeah, yeah the Gus producer, Dudgeon. Gus Dudgeon. I always pronounce it Dungeon, and I apologize. Kind of mashed them together, and Elton John was like, yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, he just stitched it together. The other thing I love about this, the first five minutes and 48 seconds, no lyrics whatsoever. It is all instrumental. Yeah. And it, here's my question for you. Yes. Is it Cosmic Yacht Rock? Uh, oh, yes. Because check it out. So here's a little sample of what this sounds like. Definitely Cosmic Yacht Rock. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. When I was listening to it the other day, I was like, I never thought about it before. This could be Cosmic Yacht Rock. Yes. And it is. So it's what uh, one of my favorite parts of the song is this really great castanet part mm. in the Funeral for a Friend section. It, it's just this little click section that lasts maybe 25 seconds, but it's great little touch that gives this song so much texture. Mm -hmm. And just love listening to it when you're like going for a run and it's like, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, woo. But this whole piece has been a staple of the Elton John live show for almost 50 years now. Yeah. And with good reason. It is tremendous. It covers just about everything. The melody to Love Lies Bleeding is fantastic and one of my favorites from his catalog. And what I think works so well in this song, and frankly, this particular entire record, is that this is when he was still in full band mode. Yes. There are contributions from everybody in that studio. And I think as he got further and further into his career, and at least in the studio, the band took smaller and smaller roles into the overall sound and the direction of the music. Uh, granted, he is a solo artist, but with this record, it definitely sounds like Elton John and the Elton John band, not Elton John and some backing musicians. Yes, I would 100% agree with that. And I'll probably come back to that point a few times, because but it's very prevalent in this song. Uh, while the synths are cool, the melody is great. The guitar part really owns this song, especially the Love Lies Bleeding part. Yeah. Uh, Davy Johnstone, who uh, I actually think is still with Elton John all these years later, is such an underrated guitarist, and he puts in such fine work on this record and on this song in particular. Also, I didn't realize how much of a banger Elton John is on the piano. Yeah. He pounds the keys hard. <laughs> and over the, over the past 25 years or so, he's gone a much more gentler route. But these older songs, he's rough on the piano. Uh, and he's a rhythmic player as well. It's very honky-tonk style. Yeah. I feel like Elton John himself became such a big figure 
pop star wise is an entity as an entity in and of himself that he overshadows any musician that he works with. And so he does have these incredibly talented musicians working with him who nobody ever thinks about and nobody remembers because Elton John. Right. Which is, on the one hand, great for Elton John, a little sad for these musicians. But like you said, apparently he's doing something good because a lot of them have been with him for 50 years. It's a steady paycheck, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing about this particular song. Apparently there's a cover of this whole piece, like Mm -hmm. this whole 11 minute piece by progressive rock band Dream Theater. Ah. Not a fan. Oh, one might suggest that because I'm a fan of bands like Rush, Genesis, Marillion, and the like, I would automatically like Dream Theater. No. Uh, while they are brilliant uh, musicians, I never got much melody from them. And I guess that's the kind of fan I am. I love good melodies. Hmm. And this record is loaded with them. Good melodies. What a weirdo. Loaded with them. I'm not knocking Dream Theater's musicianship. They're incredible players, but I want to hear a melody. I suck. Candle in the wind, Matthew. Yeah, what about it? Let's continue on with some more songs about death. (laughs) It's one of John's most well-known songs. So let's just go over this. Uh, Death, horrible breakup, death. Death. Yeah, we're we're Uh, three for three. Yes. But, like you said, probably his one of his best-known songs. Absolutely. Either this version or the, the, the 1997 version. Right, and I think if you are a younger fan out there and listening to us, your exposure to this song is in a much different form than, than yes. this one. This song was rewritten and recorded in 1997, like you said, after the death of Princess Diana. That became the second highest single of all time after only White Christmas, which had been out for 50 years mm-hmm. at that point. It won a, won a Grammy for Best Record, shot to number one on multiple charts. Uh, but this original version was written about Marilyn Monroe. Norma Jean. And in my opinion, is the far superior version of the song. I agree with you. Uh, it is referred to as a threnid- threnody. Do you know what that is? I do not. Fascinating uh, word. Because I didn't either and I had to look it up. So a huh. threnody is a wailing ode, song, hymn, or poem of mourning composed or performed as a memorial to a dead person. Oh. Threnody. A threnody. Yeah. Uh. It is also known as a lament or an elegy, but threnody is the word that was used. I've heard uh, elegy before. Uh, When interviewed years ago, Toppin said that he used Monroe as his muse for the song, but he really wrote it about any celebrity in general that is overexposed and overindulges. That's funny. I have that exact quote. Do you you really? Yeah. Toppin wrote, uh, uh, I wrote Candle in the Wind about Marilyn Monroe, but she is absolutely not someone I admired a lot as a kid or anything. She was just a metaphor for fame and dying young, and people sort of overdoing the indulgence, and those that do die young. The song could have easily, uh, excuse me, the song could have easily been about Montgomery Cliff or James Dean or even Jim Morrison, uh, but it seemed that she had a more sympathetic bent to her, so I used her. Uh, And she was female, and that was more valuable. And she was female, and that was more vulnerable. But it was really about the excesses of celebrity, the early demise of celebrities, and the live fast, die young, and leave a beautiful corpse. Uh, and that was really the crux of the song. Yikes. Yeah. Leave a yikes. Ugh. Uh, you lay it out like that, and it's like, woof. Yep. But yeah. still a beautiful song. I, I agree with you. I like this version better. The Princess Diana version is not bad, but uh, I like this version much better. And I say it's the superior version because the musicality of the song is so much better and fleshed out than the later version. Besides some really great background vocals from the whole band and a double track lead vocal from Elton John, the guitar line that plays towards the end of every chorus repeat is really what carries the song, and it is completely absent from the remake. There's a a melodic line in there that's completely gone from the second version Mm. of the song. 
and it kind of makes it more lush. It was never released in the States as a single. Uh, the label opted for Benny and the Jets instead, but it did chart in the UK and reach number 11 and appears as number 347 on Rolling Stone's list of top 500 songs of all time. Also, the original version of the song was also Princess Diana's favorite song of Elton John's, ah. a very good friend of hers, so it made sense that he would remake it in her honor. Knowing that part of the story, I'm a little bit more forgiving of maybe yeah. it's not the best of qualities because he was just trying to like jam it out like two weeks after she passed away, and yeah. he was probably still mourning. I mean, if if they were friends, so yeah, I, I do remember when he played it at her funeral. Yeah, it was a rough one, and it was uh, uh it was very nice. And I remember at the end, some people clapped, and it became this huge controversy oh, of whether they funeral? should clap to celebrate the fact that he had done it. Or whether it was inappropriate because it was a funeral. And it, I remember it being talked about for weeks afterwards. That's a tough one. Watching pundits on television. Elton John should apologize to the country. And Well, it's kind of like a... Or excuse me, I guess it would have been Elton John should apologize to the country. That's better. Country. But, uh, <laughs> I guess if you think about like a, like a really good eulogy at like a president's funeral. Mm. Like, do you clap for it? No. I mean, if the speech was really great. Even if it was the best you, speech I've ever heard, you, I, I'm not clapping well, not, for it. Not you don't clap for it, oh. but other people are clapping for it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's weird. I don't, I'm kind of on the fence there. Yeah. So also, though, if you want a special treat, track down a version of this song that appears on the 30th anniversary edition of this record. Ooh. There's a remix version of the song where everything was removed from it except the original vocal, the background vocal, and the acoustic guitar. So Ooh. nothing else is in there. It's beautiful and worth a listen. I have not heard that yet. Yes. I'll have to look it up. Really, really good version of that song. Benny and the Jets. Benny. Is the next track. Uh, a wonderful satire of uh, rock and roll fame and glam rock. So is this another one of John's biggest hits? I think that it is. I believe that it is, yes. What's amazing is that four out of the first five songs on the record are most are some of his most recognizable. Yes. Kind of falls into the abyss for a while only to be rescued by the D side of the record. Yeah. It's another one of his number one songs and even made an appearance on the Hot Soul Singles charts in mm -hmm. 1974. Weird. But, it's an but interesting it. song, though. It's very unique. Well, what I love about this is, and I did not know this, and it's something that I've heard this song a lot. I knew that this happened in the song. It's a fake live song. Yeah. So uh, Gus Dudgeon uh, heard it and realized he's like, hey, this is kind of a satire of uh, rock and roll and glam rock. Let's make it sound like a live song. So he added in that crowd going wild and and some uh, they did some effects in the studio or not in the studio, in the engineering to make it sound like it was a live recording. I think that's awesome. I think and it is, too. I really it, again, it never occurred to me until I read that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that does sound like a live recording, even though it was done in the studio. Although the lyrics are fairly unintelligible. So for years, I had no idea what he was saying other than the occasional phrase and, of course, the chorus. You know, Benny mm -hmm. and the Jets. It you know it benefits greatly from falsetto in there. But the lyrics, there are at least two more songs on this record alone that were not understandable to me for the longest time. <laughs> it's just those songs you kind of muddle through until you get to the familiar bits, you know. The Benny and the Jets. So Toppin describes the song as a satire of the 70s music scene, like you said. Uh, so you're talking about electric boots yeah. and a mohair suit. Yeah. You know, so, I read that in a magazine. So as a kid, I thought that was mole hair suit. <laughs> and I thought that sounded kind of stupid and gross. <laughs> but it's mohair. Yeah. Mohair being a fabric woven oh. from the hair of the Angora goat. Not to be confused with uh, Angora wool, which comes from Angora rabbits. There you go. Yeah. See, 
People are learning. People are learning facts. There's also been a lot of speculation that this is some sort of drug song. Mm-hmm. Benny supposedly referring to the drug, the drug Benzedrine. Yes. And Jets was getting really high. Mm-hmm. I believe there may some be some truth to that because a lot of the songs back in the 70s were uh, veiled drug references, but it's hard to tell. I would say they're all about drugs, so I don't know why that's a big deal. Let's be real here. Every song is about drugs. Yeah. Every single one. <laughs> Ave Maria. Yeah, Ave Maria is another name for heroin. Heroin. You didn't you didn't know that, did you? Facts. <laughs> uh, Toppin and John denied that it's a drug song, but uh, he's denied a lot of things over the years. Yeah. What else? What else? What else? Oh, uh, John plays the far- Farfisa organ on the song. Kind of like an Italian Farfisa. hybrid of electric piano, organ, and accordion, which gives it that cool sound at the very end. Uh, and there's some nice stereo tricks in there with the keyboard part. It's very nice. Yeah. Only other thing that I realized in doing notes for this episode, for years, I was sure it was Kenny and Molly. Oh, which I was like, two people, Kenny and Molly. Kenny and Molly. Your friends, Kenny and Molly. It is Candy and Molly. Candy and Molly, yeah. And now that I say that out loud, I wonder if that's more drug shit. Yeah, of course it is. Mm. It's all drug shit, Kyle. Drug shit. It's all drug shit. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Kyle's favorite song of all time. That, definitely one of my top <laughs> ten. Definitely one of my top ten. Like I said already, it is my dad's forever earworm. So I have been singing this song forever. So this is unquestionably my favorite Elton John song, followed closely by The Bitches Back, because I just love that song. <laughs> he's a hit factory at this he, point. He is. He's literally, there's just, he's just, they're cranking a crank on his side, and he's just like, and a song falls out. <laughs> song hit. There's another one. There's their third song. This song didn't get to number one, though. No, it did not. Number two, only held off by Top of the World by The Carpenters. Looking down on creation. You can't blame them. It's the Carpenters. This single would sell a couple million copies on its own. Rolling Stone would name it number 390 on its top 500. It's also really short. Yes. Just a little over three minutes. Um, For an Elton John song especially, it's yeah. very short. This one also had one of the original names of the album in the lyrics for the song, Vodka and Tonics. Mm-hmm. I guess they felt the title of the song was a better name for the album, and it's hard to disagree with. Right. Uh, ben Folds, the musician, had a great quote told Rolling Stone magazine for their 100 Greatest Singers of All Time issue, quote, he was mixing his falsetto and his chest voice to really fantastic effect in the 70s. There's that point in Goodbye Yellow Brick Road where he sings on the ground. <laughs> his voice is all over the shop. It's like jumping off of a diving board when he did that. Oof. I loved that. That is good. 
It's a gorgeous song. It really is. Yeah. But this is the other one of those songs, one of the other ones, that has moments of unintelligible lyrics to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew what the song was about for a long time. You know, it's about wanting to return to your roots. You know, Taupin is clearly over the exposure, over the overexposure of fame, sick of the expectations and just wants to go back to his farm. But the next line was the line that really drove it home, like that I did not understand. Back to the howling old owl in the woods, hmm. hunting the horny back toad. I had no idea those were the words at all. <laughs> back to the howling old howl, what? Old owl in the woods. It's a tongue twister. Yeah. But uh, clearly indicative of the farm life he craved. And I wish I could have understood it because uh, it's a great line. Yeah. I, I, did, I had no idea what the hell he was saying at all. The only reason I remember any of this is because I read it in that album cover. True. So. True. And I see, I had the cassette for the longest yeah, time. So didn't you, did, have, you didn't get the fold out. I did not. That's a shame. But those two, John and uh, Toppin, very fond of uh, Western American imagery. Oh, yeah. Like like that even writing an entire album using it uh that being the later captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy and the addition of the strings on this song also really good also dynamics oh yeah stuff that we used to have drilled into our heads as kids when we were taking music lessons and in band class you get louder in spots you get quieter in spots Use that to convey emotion and mood, and it no, isn't just no, 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 very no, no. present in new music. Matthew, I have learned from engineering uh, albums in the last twenty years. What you want is you want all your sounds blown out to the exact same level. Everything's the across same. the board. Just you want you don't want a waveform. You just want a block, just a block, a square uh, with a fade in and a fade out. That's I think all. Randy you want. could attest to that. If I could see my yes. vocals on the screen before he blew out the monitor, yes, then. You just want to. I just, just want a square block. Just so, me talking at the same level all the time, like this all the time. Yes, it's just a rectangle. Hmm. This is the way that you engineer an album. None of this dynamic stuff. I'm sorry. Sorry, I even <sighs> brought it up. Thank you for apologizing. Uh, but this song has no title, Matthew. <laughs> but this song, the, the, next, the song next song has, has no, no title, title. Uh, because it is called. Well, technically, the title is "This Song Has No Title." I mentioned uh, that uh, "Goodbye Yellow Road" was a short song. Mm-hmm. This one, even shorter. Yep, one Elton's shortest. Uh, also. Entirely Elton, except yeah. for uh, except for some uh, one effect. I believe it was an effect pedal. Oh yeah, John Stone operated the the uh, the wah wah pedal yes. on the keyboard. Yeah, and that was it. Elton John played every other part. They recorded them uh, separately and then mixed them together. Uh, and it gives it this fantastic sound, just like this. Tune me into the wild side. Of I'm an innocent young child sharp as a knife Take me to the garrets where the artists are dying Show me the courtrooms where the judges are lying Let me drink deeply from the water and the wine Light colored candles in dark dreary minds Look in the mirror and stare at myself Wonder if that's really me on the shelf And each day I learn just a little bit more I don't know why but I do know why for If we're all going somewhere let's get there soon Oh this song's got no title They recorded four separate vocal tracks and layered them over one another to get that cool vocal effect. 
Uh, Elton John played uh, three different acoustic piano tracks, an electric piano track, two uh, Farfisa tracks, and a Mellotron track. That's a lot of tracks. It's a lot of tracks. And but it's a cool sounding song. And I feel so bad that this one, I feel like, always gets looked over on this album because it's short. It's it's not one of his huge hits. Well, it's after the huge hits. Right. And it just, you yeah, you're, you're kind of catching your breath from the first four or five tracks, four tracks. By the time you get to this one, you're like... Yeah. Oh, I kind of need a break, but it's a it's a great song. You know, you get swept away by the hits, and there's more gems on here, and it's awesome. And he, like I said before, he is pounding the hell out of those yeah. keys again. I mean, just very percussive. Yes, Gray Seal. Gray Seal. Oh, this song has such a great hook right from the beginning. Right, just that keyboard line is spectacular. I yeah. This is another one of my favorite Elton John songs. This is for sure top 10. Elton John, in fact, says this is one of his favorites. Yeah. Uh, he loves the way the music matches up to the lyrics. He says, uh, in the tradition of a whiter shade of pale, uh, the lyrics form a series of images that are open to translation. Uh, Elton has in the past called it protocol haramish absurd, like a dolly painting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's It really is. The lyrics are are absolutely absurd. Tell me, Gray Seal. How does it feel to be so wise? The gray seal is the most famous and noticeable marine life in the British Isles. Ooh. Perhaps they've gained some wisdom over the years. They have, because they've been so wise. They're, they're very wise. They see through eyes that only see what's real. See? No, it's there. You right? just got to look a little deeper. So this song was originally written and recorded by Toppin and John back in 1970, and they re-recorded it for this record, which seems like a weird choice. Not that I don't love this song, because I do. But it seems as though you already had a double LP going. <laughs> right? It's not like you were scrounging for material to finish something <laughs> off. So why put it on here? Like they were just in the studio and they were like just sitting with music all around them and like, shit, you this album's only going to be 29 minutes long. What? No, no, it's 69 minutes long. Oh, well, we got to oh, put something else on here. Crap. We just one recorded more, that. We got to squeeze it in there. I just jam it in there. So one of my other favorite parts of this song is the end mm -hmm. uh, that includes a very extensive ride out with some great percussion parts. Uh, when I listened to this again, I got a big smile on my face because I could picture longtime uh, Elton John percussionist Ray Cooper playing these parts. I don't know if you've ever seen him, Kyle. I have not. Uh, but he is a show unto himself. So back in the 1980s, I used to watch these Prince's Trust concerts on HBO. They were benefit shows with all the British rock stars. So they had like Sting and Phil Collins and all these guys, Paul McCartney, and they're all playing. And back behind the band was this bald guy with a small circular sunglasses, banging on a tambourine like his life depended on it. He had really small parts. And between hits, he would spin around and hoist the tambourine up in the air and then bring it down slowly, hit it, and begin again. And I was transfixed because he had made himself relevant in a completely non-relevant part. <laughs> so when Heather and I saw uh, the Elton John Million Dollar Piano Show here at Caesars Palace in Vegas, there, there was Ray, high on a platform behind Elton John. And I stared and stared, and I would start laughing. And Heather was like, what? And I was like, look at him. He's awesome. <laughs> and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to some of, uh, some of him and check it out. However... And this is where the story gets very disappointing. However, I looked at the liner notes. Turns out it wasn't Cooper at all oh. that played those songs. It was drummer Nigel Olsen. Oh. Cooper played tambourine on one song on this record, but it doesn't diminish his standing at all, nor the part <laughs> in this song. It's still awesome. But check it out. It's He's one of the most entertaining people I've ever seen in my life, and he, all he's doing is playing a tambourine or one bongo. It's like <laughs> you, you've made yourself a show. It's great. I, I, the only thing that I'm kind of sad about is you said that he was uh, a drug addict, and that's really sad. <laughs> 
You Ray said, Cooper? Yeah, you said he was high on a platform. High on a platform. I've never heard of a platform before. Well, but it sounds like a pretty good drug. You, that's sad. <laughs> that's that's a shame. But uh, I hope that he can get the help that he needs to to get to get off of a platform. A platform. Ah, uh, you're being a Jamaica jerk off. Guy. I am being a Jamaica jerk off hmm. that way. Where do I start? First of all, oh boy. Kyle, as you know, I am a frequent visitor of the yes. beautiful island of Jamaica. Hope to be a permanent resident at some point in the future. And while I appreciate the double entendre, I wouldn't re- I wouldn't recommend combining the two. <laughs> if you're going to masturbate, I would recommend doing so well after you've washed your hands of the jerk seasoning, <laughs> uh, because Scotch bonnet peppers are very burny. <laughs> I love that this uh, the song uh, Jamaica Jerk Off starts with an organ. <laughs> That was my favorite part. I was like, ha I get it. I see what you did there. Uh, what the hell am I listening to? Is uh, this Elton John affecting a Jamaican accent? Yes. You know, island style? Good God. I'm still curious to know, do you think this song was written when they were on their downtime in Jamaica? Or do you think it was written after they were back in France recording as sort of a like, hey, you, to I think, Jamaica, no. because they had been screwed over I think by they it. wrote it there. Okay. I could be reading the lyrics incorrectly, but it seems to be implying that all the tur- tourists are rude assholes, but he's telling Jamaican people to just let them act how they want to act, and we'll still party and have a good time, because as Randy knows, everything is Irie. <laughs> so let's just say the next time I'm down there, I won't be cozying up to the bar and requesting a rum punch and that classic Elton John tune yeah. to make a jerk off. Also, the... uh well, the rest of the illustrations are beautiful. The illustration in the middle of the uh, the album for this is a little uh, racist. Uh, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it. It's a little bit of a racist. It's a presumably Jamaican person uh-huh. uh, with large teeth and a big smile. Yes, it's uh, holding a wearing overalls and holding a straw hat. It's incredibly racist. It is incredibly racist. And it is a, a scar on an otherwise beautiful album 1973. It's not an excuse, no. But realize that that was common. It was still very common, and people looked past it at the time, which is a shame because uh, it's super racist. Just, uh, I'm not going to be requesting this anytime soon. No, I wouldn't either. What do you want to do for karaoke today? Uh, Well, how about Jamaica Jerk? What? You remember the the Visit Jamaica commercials from the '90s? Of course. For some reason, I feel like they used this in one of them. Oh, my God. And there's no way they could have. I tried to look this up, and I d- didn't find You couldn't find, find it? So it might be one of those- It's uh, not on YouTube. It might be- Is it, it the Mandala exist. The Mandala effect? Where oh. it's like you think that it happened, but it didn't. And I think it's just a combination of- They did use- um, Oh, what's the Bob Marley song that they used in all of them? Uh, don't worry about a thing. Are you t- uh, everything's going to be all right? Yeah, is that that's the one? it. Everything's yeah. going to be all right. I feel like maybe- they used that song in a lot of the Jamaica Visit Jamaica commercials from the 90s. And I think for whatever reason, my brain just replaced it with this. But I was like, I'm listening to it again when we first started, when I first started researching this album again. And I was like, there's no way they've used this in a Visit Jamaica commercial. I don't think there's so. There's no way. And then I couldn't find it. So I'm assuming they did not. But, Wait, but if it's not on YouTube, if it's not it's on YouTube, like it the, doesn't exist. It's kind of like the Jedi archives. Yeah. If, it, if we don't have it. It doesn't exist. Because that means that uh, some dark uh, Jedi who, who runs the, the Tourist Council of Jamaica- Oh, then he erased it? Uh, erased it. If anybody is a dark Jedi who runs the Tourist Council for Jamaica, uh, get in touch and uh, tell us- uh... It sounds like a movie plot, and I've seen that movie too. <laughs> oh! 
Oh, well, so have I, because that's the next song. Oh, how about that? This is a great uh, a homage to movies from the 40s and 50s and 60s. Longest song on the record. Mm-hmm. If you don't count the opening track that is really True. a combo of two songs. It's almost six minutes. And this song is very much in the Billy Joel vein for me. Yes. It has that very noir movie type sound similar to The Stranger by Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. Has that lilting, slow, almost blues-like tempo. And it's very much a song about a partner caught in a lie or a series of lies. Mm-hmm. Trying to act their way out of it. It's a good song. Has yeah. some great musicality. But as the last song on the second side of a four-side album, it kind of gets lost. Yes. It does have a claim to fame, though. Do you know? Is this the the illustration claim to fame? Are you referring to the MST3K? Yes, I am. Would you like to so, go uh, the, the liner illustration for this one uh, is a picture of a man about to kiss a woman, like in uh, Gone with the Wind, that is on a a, a movie screen. Uh, and in front of it is a silhouette of a movie theater uh, with a man and a woman sitting in the seats and the woman is leaned over on the man and they're embracing. This apparently directly inspired Joel Hodgson, the creator of the television show Mystery Science Theater 3000, to do that in Mystery Science Theater 3000. Instead of just them riffing movies from off screen to have them in silhouette in front of the movie. Uh, and he has said as much uh, in an interview with Mark Marin on his podcast. Uh, he explained that the illustration had directly given him the idea to use silhouettes. That's to me is a such a weird little like this little tiny illustration because it really is it's three yeah. by three inches in a, an album cover inspired somebody to make something that has become such a pop culture like touchstone for so many people. And when I found that, I'm like, that is cool. That's a cool yeah. little a piece of information. I had heard this many years ago. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And then to have him confirm it on Mark Maron's podcast, it was like, oh, yeah, that's straight from the creator's mouth. That's that's legit now. Hmm. That is really cool, though. I'm glad that you found that, too. Yeah. Because uh, that's an excellent little piece of information. It makes I like me it. feel slightly less nerdy. Nerd. Nerd. Sweet painted lady. And here begins the second album of the double LP and a strange twisted journey into the psyche of Bernie Taupin's mind fraught with prostitutes little girls lesbian prostitutes mm-hmm. and 50 style brawls because this one is the album deep cut fucks fuck song <laughs> i almost fucked that up seriously it's a little weird i mean i know this is the early 70s and such but it's a very st- strange trip starting here yes starting at this particular point so first off this song is about a guy who uh, a bunch of bunch of guys who are in port from sea mm-hmm. visiting the local dock brothel the sweet painted ladies in fact uh it has some really nice subtle horn parts and accordion parts furthering my opinion that billy joel was greatly influenced by elton john i would agree with that because this could easily be a billy joel song mm-hmm. i i feel like they got to that point though where they influenced each other back and forth yeah and but this is pre this is this is pre i mean this yeah. would be elton john influenced billy joel and then billy joel wrote music that influenced elton john and then vice versa and they played back and forth for a little bit until billy joel stopped making music have you ever seen any of the uh, the concerts that they did together? Yes. Yeah. Not maybe in person. Not in person, or but whatever. Yes. When they play each other's songs, you really hear it. You really hear that influence of like Elton playing a Billy Joel song or Billy Joel playing an Elton song. Their voices are in the same register as yeah. well. So, yeah. yeah. I could do without the gulls and the sea sounds. Yeah, I would agree with that. I never liked that literal stuff. Uh, but we've talked about this many times, Cobb, because it's hard to get around in 1973. But the melody, mm-hmm. very reminiscent of some late Beatles songs. Yes. And again, that time, it was it, it was impossible to ignore. Yeah. Well, that, they had been, and still maybe are, the most powerful force in music 
I mean, they, they led the way for rock and roll, basically. And because of that, everybody has been influenced by them, True. whether directly or indirectly. And so obviously, like you said, this is in the wake of that. And literally, it was like you almost had to do a song that had some kind of Beatles influence or you became irrelevant as a musician. I, I, would, I would tend to agree. The other, the other option was to go so far to the right or to the left of what the Beatles were doing that you were your completely unique thing. But mm. that, wasn't, that wasn't very common. No. I really love his voice on this song, mm-hmm. uh, but it is. But really, is it any wonder that this gets lost in his catalog? No. This is not a song you readily do in your MTV days or your Crocodile Rock moments. Yeah. It's more adult fare suitable for the lounge singer, not the stadium player. And I wonder how much pushback he gave Toppin on some of these lyrics. I don't know. I think there were uh, arguments, or you think he just took what he gave him and just put melodies? Because he probably had like a thousand melodies in right. his head. Like, well, here it is. <laughs> Here's a melody for this one, and here's a melody for that one. I don't care what it says. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't really, uh, the the little short documentary that I watched didn't really go into that. Mm. It sounded like more like a machine, like we've said. Yeah. uh, uh, The Ballad of Danny Bailey, 1909 to 1934. Complete and total fiction. Complete fiction. Probably an amalgam of uh, Bernie Taupin said that uh, Danny Bailey is completely fictitious. Quote, Danny Bailey is John Dellinger or Pretty Boy Floyd. He's my composite gangster. Exactly. It's a pretty nice marriage of music and lyrics again. Uh, John seems to really utilize the lyrics for his musical benefit. There's a part at the beginning of the song uh, where Danny gets shot, and drummer Nigel Olsen dramatizes that with a single echoey rim shot. Yeah. That's just perfect musical theater. Uh, There's also a little gravel in Elton's voice on this song, which gives it a little more, you know, weight. And the bass is very pronounced on this song as well. And that's laid low on this record to some degree. Some really nice playing by Dee Murray. And the background vocals on here are great. It's a deep cut. Yes, very deep. It's also a big throwback to uh, Bernie and Elton's uh, love of all things American pop culture Mm. from the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, And that keeps coming up on these last two sides. Yeah, Tons of gangster movies came out in that time frame, uh, like noir movies. That this like this literally feels to me like it would be like a like an opening montage to a movie. Yeah. Like he would get shot and then this song would play to introduce the movie, uh, The Ballad of Danny Bailey. I'm wondering uh, with how deep and extensive his catalog is. Do you think he remembers how to play some of these lesser known songs oh boy. or that he even recorded them? I know there were some sections of Bowie's career that he didn't even remember yeah. because he was so coked up. <laughs> And there are par- parts of John's, too, I would imagine. But I found some recordings of him playing it live in 1973, but nothing since. So yeah. it'd just be I, like, hey, remember that ballad of Danny Bailey song? Who made that? Yeah, who you was, did. Who was that? Oh. No, I have no idea. I don't remember that. I don't know, man. I would guess you're probably right. But uh, at least you're not a dirty little girl. Do you think Bernie Taupin may have had a bad experience somewhere before this album? Because whoever this person he is writing about, he does not like her. Yeah, he wrote this uh, almost country song about her. Pretty visceral lyrics, I would say. Mm. Uh, And here, hand them to a guy who's struggling with his sexuality and trying to figure out who he really is and confuse him some more. It's so out of place and almost a little hilarious. (laughs) Here... Here's my own belief about all the dirty girls, that you have to clean the oyster to find the pearl. (laughs) Those are bad lyrics by anyone's measure. But Rolling Stone had this to say about this song, though. Nobody did glam rock on the excessive scale of Elton. His 1973 double album, Goodbye Yellbrick Road, was the My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy of its day. He snarls 
every word of this heavy guitar stomp, dragging it down or dragging it out to five hilariously over the top minutes, complaining about groupies who wouldn't stop knocking on his door. Someone grabbed that biatch by the ears <laughs> because they just can't get enough of his funky stuff. No doubt that was a big problem for Elton at the time. Yikes, Rolling Stone. Why don't you tell us how you really feel? They've also denied that that lyric, uh, uh, you have to clean the oyster to find the pearl. They've denied that that is an or- a reference to uh, oral sex, but uh, no way. That is definitely a, uh, I'm, I'm gay and I realize what's going on there. I Come believe on, he guys. had groupies knocking down his door all the time. Oh, I'm sure he did. But the snarl is kind of hilarious. Right? <laughs> In an otherwise forgettable song. Yeah. <laughs> all the girls love Alice. Uh, a thinly veiled story about a young lesbian uh, who might have been a prostitute and who either commits suicide or is murdered. So hmm. very upbeat, bright song you definitely want to hear. So this is what I wrote. Not entirely sure what's going on here. It's about a 16-year-old heterosexual young girl named Alice who is a lesbian prostitute for housewives and frequents some sketchy clubs as well and winds up dead by the subway. Do I have that? I believe that is correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, Sheesh, Toppin. What what's, the hell? What's crazy, too, is a lot of people... because. This is not thinly veiled. It is, it is very no, explicit very what's happening overt. in the lyrics. A lot of people are still just like, I don't know what happened. Is, is it, was she kidnapped? Was she uh, a murdered young girl? It's like, no, she was a prostitute, a lesbian prostitute <laughs> who was murdered to hide the fact that somebody <laughs> was sleeping with her. What? What? Yes, this is 1970-something, yeah. early 70s. Yikes. Also, Elton John's first song about homosexuality. Uh, weirdly enough, uh, about uh, that's true. Uh, an underage lesbian. So that's fun. The song's a stomper, firmly entrenched in the 70s, but it's still good. Yes. I feel like I've heard this melody from John later in his career, but it still mm. holds up all right. Mm-hmm. It also has the first appearance of Kiki D, mm. who sang backup on this song. She would score a hit on the duet Don't Go Breaking My Heart with Elton a few years later. Don't go breaking my heart. You can't help but sing it. You have you can't. to. You, you have to. It's, but, a, it's a legal, another legal requirement of Elton John. Houses held up by Elton John albums. Uh, somebody mentions Don't Go Breaking My Heart, breaking my and you have to sing that line. But lyrically, man. You have to wonder, because these are Toppin's lyrics. Yes. You know, and we've talked about this. Was John choosing them to say things about himself or not? So I had read a number of commentaries on this song about John's crazy, demented fantasies. And some people pointed out that these are Toppin's lyrics. So you can't really indict Elton John. But he is choosing them. Yes. Nonetheless. So does he want to, does he just want to storytell or is he using as a reflection? Even Rolling Stone bit Mm. on this one. And they said this. This sums up the cracked personality Elton brought to 70s pop. He was routinely topping the charts with sensitive love ballads, yet his albums were full of demented fantasies like this one, a glammed-out ode to a 16-year-old goth lesbian femme fatale, complete with screaming guitars and horror movie synths. Maybe, just maybe, drugs were involved. (laughs) I think it's safe to say, personally, that all of these songs had drugs involved to some degree. Yeah, I think you might be right. So I don't know if it's a crack personality as (laughs) as much as it is two personalities, his and Bernie's. (laughs) it's just uh, that is always what i find interesting about that relationship to unpack there is is how sometimes they are so in sync with one another and then other times they're 180 degrees opposed to one another but they still make good music Mm -hmm. that's kind of nuts that's kind of nuts that it it always works but uh matthew your sister can't twist uh but she can rock i don't think she could really do any of those what Uh, again uh, here's a twist uh flips 
this whole from all these depressed, sad songs about murder and prostitution, and then all of a sudden here's a song about your uh, sister uh, who can't twist. Come on, she can rock and roll. Totally influenced by the the art, the the rhythm and blues music that Elton John was listening to, the Motown sound from the fifties and sixties. Completely influenced by that. But someone needs to check on Bernie Taupin. This is another song about an underage girl. Yeah. She's only 16, but it's plain to see she can pull the wool over little old me. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes. Uh, have you ever checked out Song Facts, the website? Uh, I think so, yeah. A bunch of, they literally just list facts about songs. Surprise. But they said this, quote, a throwback to music of the late 50s and early 60s, when lots of songs were about dance crazes and teenage girls. Uh, this song finds Elton John singing about a 16-year-old girl who can't do, quote, the twist, unquote, but can outbuck a bronco. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 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 Oh, also, it famously has the word, uh, shit, shit in it. Played on the radio all the time. Woo! Uh, yeah. But nobody cared. Because it was on this huge record, buried amongst a whole ton of hits. And it's like, meh. Uh, it also has some surf music stylings. Yes, it does. Which I know Kyle enjoys. Mm -hmm. And even the last chorus, John sings, your sister can't surf, but she can rock and roll. In a direct nod to the Beach Boys. Hell yeah. I wonder if she goes out on Saturdays. I bet she does, and I bet she fights. Our Saturday nights. They are all right for fighting. All right for fighting. This song feels so out of place on this side of this record. It doesn't fit. No, it doesn't fit at all. And it's another huge Elton John hit. In a Rolling Stone interview, Elton John talked about recording this song, and he said, I vividly remember recording Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. I couldn't seem to get the piano part right, so when the band played bass, drums, and guitar, I laid on the floor and did the vocal live. And then I put on my piano part afterwards. It's an odd way of doing it, but I remember doing that because it felt, for some reason, the four of us, me playing live, it just didn't work. So I overdubbed my piano afterwards and sang the vocals live. That's pretty cool. Right? So he does at least remember recording one of these songs. It's de <laughs> it's definitely uh, one of the most rocky songs in his catalog. Yes. So sounding a little bit more like The Who or The Stones or something like that. I've seen people compare this to Zeppelin online. Mm -hmm. I think those people are a little bent in the head. There's no Zepp here. Sorry. Yeah. But Topping used his experiences growing up in England and getting oiled up mm -hmm. to go to the pubs. I love that line. Getting oiled up. Get about as oiled up as a diesel train. Oh, I love that. This is the first and only song they actually recorded in Jamaica at the beginning of the sessions. And then they threw that recording out and recorded it. Because it was yet. garbage. Yeah. Apparently, he has played this song over 1,300 times live. I would believe that. And when he performed it in Vegas, in that same show that I saw, he would invite some of the crowd to hang out, dance on stage <laughs> to this song at the very end of the show. Uh, I saw it. It was a very cool element. Until, bah, 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 in 2018, an over-anxious fan kept touching him. Elton stormed off the stage, and when he returned, declared, No more coming on stage on Saturday night. You fucked it up. <laughs> Good job, people. So, uh, obviously, Elton John has been covered a lot. That's true. And I want to tell you about a cover of this song, but I have to set it up first. Because I'm intrigued. when I say the line that I'm going to say at the end of this setup, when, when I say this line out loud, it's definitely people are going to just be like, what the fuck? And then <laughs> you just have to go listen to it and, and it'll make sense. So I got to set this up. So if you are somewhere safe, listener, tip your head back, close your eyes. If you're driving or operating a, a, a machine or something, don't do this. But if you are safe, tip your head back, close your eyes. Imagine with me a suburb somewhere with a strip mall. At the end of this strip mall, there are two businesses next to one another uh, on, on our left is an incredibly spicy Indian curry restaurant. Delicious, 
nice spicy smells out inside the restaurant, uh, good value for your money. To the right of it is a daycare center that specializes in children with incontinence issues. Now let's walk around the edge of this uh, uh, strip mall, and behind these two buildings, uh, they share a dumpster. This is the grossest dumpster you can possibly imagine. Uh, food waste from an Indian restaurant, diapers from incontinent children. Um, now imagine, uh, one day, this dumpster bursts into flame. Huge, stinky smoke coming out of it. Just the most disgusting smell you can possibly imagine. And people are standing around saying, we have to put the... What do we do? Do we get water? Do we get buckets? And somebody says, I know what we'll do. And instead of putting it out, they rent a gigantic crane, pick the dumpster, flames it all up, and dump it into an even larger dumpster, thus catching the second dumpster on fire. It is now a double dumpster fire. Uh-huh. It is absolutely just the biggest, stinkiest fire you can possibly imagine. Finally, the fire department shows up, they put it out, and out of the wreckage rolls a tiny gold nugget. Now, I'm going to tell you, listeners, to pick up this gold nugget and use it to your advantage. It's a disgusting gold nugget. You have the memory of where this gold nugget came from. Here's that gold nugget. Go pick up a copy of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, the soundtrack. <laughs> And listen to the cover of this song done by Nickelback featuring Kid Rock. <laughs> Double dumpster fire. But out of it, a gold nugget. Uh, it, it, it really is a fantastic and amazing cover. It was a mile song. to go for that joke. It was joke. a long way to go for that joke. Uh, and I apologize uh, if it took too long. But uh, I feel like it was worth it. This, this uh, really is... A great cover it's of this song. Double dumpster fire gold nugget. Nickelback featuring Kid Rock from the movie Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. I don't know that I can listen to ah, it's gonna take a it's gonna take a lot of commitment on my great. part to go do that. It is a pretty good cover though. You may have to find it somewhere on YouTube because I did just find out the other day, apparently, that uh, it is not licensed through any service that I could find to play this track. All the other tracks on this soundtrack album are, this one is not. So, whoop-de-poop. Whoop-de-double-dumpster fire. <laughs> whoop-de-double-dumpster fire. It's a, it's a fun song. It uh, is. Ton of energy. Yes. Oh, here, here's some fun. It was banned... By some stations in 1973 because they feared it would incite violence. Ooh. Elton John, the instigator of violence. I can't tell you how many times I've said that. Right? He's a... Oof. Crocodile rock, screw you, punch. <sighs> Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers. It's a beautiful the homage. cowboy. To the singing cowboy. Oh, Roy man. Rogers, the famous singing cowboy, the king of the cowboys. Big name Hollywood actor who was idolized by millions and a star not only of film, but of radio and TV. Mm -hmm. Although his film career finished in the early 50s and his TV career in the late 50s, he was instantly recognizable and his name was still known throughout the world up until his death until 1998. Like we mentioned earlier, Bernie Taupin definitely had an affection for the American West. And it sounds like he also had a bit of a soft spot for American television as well. Yeah, this is definitely, it's a song all about how 
people use television and pop culture as a form of escapism. And even, you know, we're talking, this was 1973, presumably he wrote it a little bit before that, mm-hmm. but he was already talking about deep concepts about how people would, you know, sit in an armchair and watch Roy Rogers on television. And then you're the cowboy. You're the one riding through the West, you know, uh, saving the damsel and, and you know, jumping the horse. It's a- <laughs> I don't know. We rode off on the the women. (laughs) The slide guitar is really great. Yes, it is. Uh, John uh, utilizes a bit of a country twang on a couple of the verses. He's Mm -hmm. a bit bit of a chameleon on this record, all the way through singing in multiple styles. I'm not, nor have ever been a big country fan, uh, but there's a great cover of this uh, song by country artist Casey Musgraves, Mm. and it's actually very, very good. Very, very good. Uh, I love how the end of this song yes. it has those outdoorsy sounds to it, and then it bleeds into the next track, Social Disease. Mm. Uh, I think that that's really cool. I love it when they do that on albums. And I also love that this next song is sort of a country uh, like honky-tonk song. I would say, yeah, it is, right? a, it I, is a bit of a honky-tonk song. It reminds song. me a lot of Honky Cat. Not uh, one of Elton John's yeah, great hits. Yeah, right, because he pounding the hell out of the yeah. key. He plays in that honky-tonk style. Thought it was interesting. I did not know that uh, they used to use the term social disease to refer to STDs. Yeah, I have <laughs> that. It's a commonly used euphemism for an STD. Never uh, never associated that one. However, the song is about a lazy alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I like some of the bluegrass elements. The banjo is nice. The sax. Yeah, it's okay. What I love is I feel like this is almost a perfect marriage of an American country honky-tonk song Married with British lyrics, mm-hmm. because like uh, one of my favorites is uh, my landlady lives in a caravan. Uh, that is when she isn't in my arms. And it's like hmm. caravan. Americans picture a caravan as like a wagon train. Sure. But in Britain, that's just like a camper trailer. Oh, or like a uh, like a car a van. Yes. <laughs> is it a it's, car or is, or is it, it a van? van? It's a caravan. Only the British can decide. Uh, the only line I pulled out of here that was worthy of a little research was the line, I get juiced on Mateus and just hang loose. Ooh. Uh, Mateus is a variety of sweet Portuguese wine. It's a dessert wine. Ooh. So there's a little info right there. I learned something from a song, something about wine I want to try. Ooh, there you go. Mateus. I do like wine. Uh, here's a, that uh, that uh, honky-tonk sound that I was talking about. Oh, here's, yeah. Here's a little sample of it. Well, my land. I love needs a little wash tub bass. Right? I love it when he sings social disease. I love that. It is uh, memorable. It is. And an otherwise not memorable song, that's a nice memorable little part. Right? I do like it. That part always stuck out to me. 
wrapping it up here. Harmony. Album's final song. Final song. Uh, unlike a lot of the records that we do, which seem to get duds at the end, this is one of the best. Yeah. Originally released as the B-side to Benny and the Jets. We were going to release this as a single, but it took so long to release the other singles that they were afraid this was going to come out too close to his next album, Caribou, which, like you said, in that time frame, he was releasing so many goddamn albums yeah. and so many singles. he didn't even have time. Yeah. Didn't even have time to let the whole record kind of like get its uh, worth. Yeah, but uh, it's got these gorgeous harmonies, oh, yeah. like all of the Beach Boys. The whole band should get praise for this song, as these are all of his people. No brought-in chorus of backup singers. It's these are all his bandmates doing all the the background vocals, and it's a it's a it's a fitting close to an album just loaded with great melodies. You got more on this one? I was just going to say that uh, Elton has said he feels like this could have been another number one hit had it come out as its own single. I agree. It's a beautiful song. Another short one, 245, mm-hmm. but memorable. And much like uh, Rhiannon in 77 by uh, Fleetwood Mac would influence baby names for a couple of years, so did this one. Yeah. Uh, Mid-74 and 75, there was a significant uptick in little girls named Harmony. So... I had a professor named Rhiannon once, and the very first day she came walking into the room, and she was like, yes, I'm named after the song. No, I don't want to talk about it. Let's move on. Do you have the syllabus? What is there to talk about? Right? I was like- I wasn't there for the naming. It's not like you were named by the musicians. It's not my fault. Uh, so that- That's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road right there. Rightfully considered one of the finest- rock albums ever released Mm -hmm. totally deserves the accolades and sales that has racked up over the years definitely the work of a power duo at the creative peak Uh, and i'm glad that you picked it kyle it's actually been years since i uh, really dug into the work of elton john uh, so it was nice it is definitely a you know when you're doing research on it and stuff it's a hard album to simultaneously a very easy album to crack and very difficult because there's so much about it that it's this overwhelming flood of information. Yeah, and once then again, like, you picked one that's got like like volumes, like yeah. uh, sea pet sounds. Yeah. Uh, and if you have listened to it up to now with us this episode, we're glad that you took your time yes. to listen to it to this point. Thank you for, for spending the full hour and 16 minutes. <laughs> if uh, you liked it, we'd like to hear more. Please go to our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash audio judo sign up for some bonus content we have many episodes called judo chops on there as well as some of our unedited interviews mm-hmm. and discounts on merch other cool stuff subscriptions start at just three dollars a month uh, and if you want to talk to us directly and we may respond during an episode if you say something nice uh, you can get in touch with us. Info at audiojudo.com is probably the best way to do it. You can also get in touch with us. Facebook.com forward slash audiojudo. Twitter is at audiojudo. Instagram is at audio underscore judo. Very good. Remembered that from last time. So we're about a month away from yeah. launching our new sub podcast, spinoff podcast, if you will, called Audio Judo Does Jazz. It's a 16 part limited series that will serve as a nice introduction to the genre uh, jazz is always a difficult hill to climb, and with the help of our host, Chris, uh, we're going to try and help you climb it. Uh, look for that on April 30th, which is International Jazz Day. We are also recording that podcast exclusively with the AKG Podcaster Kit oh, by man. Harmon. Uh, the super equipment, just plug and play. If you're looking to get into podcasting, if you're listening to us and you're like, you guys suck, I could do it way better than you do. Do it. Please do it. Frankly, do it. who couldn't do it better than we do? Then this is the gear for you, really. It's easy to use. Sounds great. Just check that out at akg.com, or it's also available on Amazon. Other than that, uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.